The second Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 12, um, pages 298 in the Pew Bibles. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made the king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and grey, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. And you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Astaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemy, our enemies, and we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak, and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but the king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord, and he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see what your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. For serve the Lord with all your heart, 
and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in a good and a right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Thanks, Yuan. Over this term, we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel to see the big picture of how God is working to save his people and to prepare them for his promised king. But because we're moving through it pretty quickly, some weeks we're covering pretty big passages of 1 Samuel. This morning, even though we read out some of chapter 10 and chapter 12, we're actually going to be looking at all of chapters 9 through to 12, and it'll give us a great chance to see the big picture of what God is doing, but it does mean that we have to skim past a lot of the interesting details. So let me encourage you, if you want to dig into the details more, the best place to do that is in a growth group that meets during the week, or come and ask me a question. I love talking about the Bible. And I'd love to hear your questions. Let's pray and let's ask God for his help as we look at these chapters. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please give us understanding now and please work through it to change us to be more like Jesus and grow us in faith in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 2001 movie Ocean's Eleven, Frank Ocean recruits a team of 11 highly skilled criminals to pull off a daring heist, the robbery of the vault of the Grand Bellagio, a casino in Las Vegas. But everything seems to go wrong with this heist. Frank Ocean is captured by the baddies, the money is blown up in the vault, and SWAT is called to lock the place down. Everything seems lost. The heist has failed. But has it? The baddie notices one of the details is wrong, and then we see the real story. It was meant to seem like everything was going wrong. Calling SWAT wasn't the problem. SWAT was the crew dressed up in uniform so they could carry all the money out of the casino with no problems. An ocean had been captured on purpose, locked up so that he could claim his innocence. It looked like a failure, but behind the scenes, something else was going on all along. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel 9 to 12 as well. Not a casino heist, but something going on behind the scenes. So far in 1 Samuel, we've seen God act to save his people again and again. When Hannah cried out, he gave her a son. When Israel was under attack, they cried out and God rescued them, defeating the Philistines without them even lifting a finger. But they didn't realize how good they had it. And in chapter 8, the people rejected God as their king by asking for a king like the nations, someone to judge them, to lead them, to fight their battles for them. And now, in chapters 9 to 12, it seems like God is just giving them exactly what they asked for. A king who looks impressive, 
but is actually a disappointment. This is God's judgment. They've rejected him, and so he hands them over to their sin, and he gives them what they've asked for. But there's something else going on here. When we look closely, we see that even as he acts in judgment, God is faithful to his promises, and he is acting to save his people for his name's sake. As we follow the story of what happens, we're going to trace both threads. We're going to see the people rejecting God and him giving the king, them the king that they asked for, a king like the nations. And behind it all, we're going to see God, faithful to his promises, acting to save his people. But this isn't just an interesting story. This is actually our God too. A God that we can have confidence in too. A God who is working even in our brokenness and sin to keep his promises and to save us through his true and better King Jesus. We're going to move pretty quickly. I'm going to only put some of the verses up on the screen. So I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles as we go. First part of the story, we see the king they asked for anointed in secret. Remember how chapter 8 ended. The people rejected God and asked for a king. And God tells Samuel to give them what they've asked for. And so Samuel sends everyone home. What is he going to do? Who is going to be the king? Scene change. The camera cuts to a young man from the tribe of Benjamin. Could this be the king? We get his father's genealogy, and that's the kind of thing you get for a king. And then we get his qualifications to be king. See them in verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. First, this guy's name is Saul which sounds like the Hebrew word for asked for. The people asked for a king, and now this guy appears on the scene whose name is asked for. <laughs> what are his qualifications to be, to be king? He is ridiculously good-looking, the, the best-looking man in all of Israel. Oh, and did I mention he's really tall? What do you get when you ask for a king like the nation's? You get someone who looks very impressive, but does he have the substance? Saul's dad sends him on a quest to find some lost donkeys, and Saul obeys his dad. He traipses around the countryside looking for the donkeys, but then he can't find them, and he he wants to turn around. The first thing we see from Saul is a failed mission to find some donkeys. But his servant rescues the quest by suggesting that they go to the prophet. And the servant even funds this with his own money because Saul's got nothing. Paul's passive, Saul is passive and a bit helpless, but he goes up to the city. They ask for directions for some young women coming out drawing water. And again, Saul's oblivious. So far in the Bible, meeting women at the well nearly always leads to marriage. But Saul's just asking where to find the prophet. And they tell him in verse 13, go straight up, straight away, and he'll run into the prophet. And it's this really comedic moment, verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Saul goes up to the exact guy he's looking for and asks him where the prophet is. How embarrassing. 
So far, Saul looks impressive on the outside, but he lacks substance. He's a bit helpless. Is this God's judgment on his people that this is the king they asked for? But there's more going on behind the scenes. Look in verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is a man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Saul looks like a bumbling mess, but God is working. He revealed it to Samuel. He sent Saul. All the traipsing around the country has been God's doing. God is sovereignly working in all the mess to save his people. And he's doing it because he's heard their cry, just like he heard their cry in Egypt all those years ago and saved them. He's acting now through Saul to save his people. In fact, somehow Saul is going to restrain them, to hold them back from becoming just like the nations like they planned. So Samuel, he tells Saul where the donkeys are, takes him up to a feast and gives him the place of honour and a special portion and he puts him up for the night. Saul is understandably very confused. But the next morning, Samuel sends Saul's servant away and tells Saul God's word. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Anointing was a sign of being set apart for a special role by God. And so Saul, the asked-for guy, the ridiculously good-looking tall guy, is secretly anointed to be their prince, the leader of God's people, to rescue them from their enemies. But notice here who has anointed him. Samuel says it's twice. It is the Lord who has anointed you. God is working to save his people. How can Saul know that this is true? It'd all be very confusing. Well, on his way home, Saul's going to see three signs that this anointing is confirmed by God. First, Saul's going to see two men near Rachel's tomb who tells him that the donkeys have been found. Second, he'll meet three men going up to God at Bethel who will give him two loaves of bread. These might seem like chance encounters, but God is behind them. God is sovereign over every detail. He is raising up Saul to rescue his people. But the third sign is where things get really interesting. Chapter 10, verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Just notice some of the details in what Samuel says here. 
See, there's something wrong at Gibeath Elohim. That is the hill of God. There's a garrison of the Philistines there. And this town isn't on the border of Israel. This is smack bang in the middle of Israel, not too far from Jerusalem. If the enemy has a garrison here in the middle of Israel, then God's people must be in pretty big trouble. And Samuel says that the spirit will rush on Saul and he'll prophesy and be transformed into another man. And Samuel cryptically says, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. What should Saul do? Well, remember, he's been appointed to rescue God's people from the Philistines. There's a Philistine garrison there. And like the mighty judges of old who fought God's enemies, the spirit of the Lord is going to rush on Saul. When you put that all together, I think it's fairly clear what Saul is meant to do. He's meant to fight against the Philistine garrison and rescue God's people. That's what he's been anointed for. So what does he do? We're told that all the signs come to pass. The spirit rushes on Saul. He prophesies. The whole town is talking about it. And then nothing happens. He keeps the anointing to himself. And that's the end of the story. He doesn't fight the Philistines. He doesn't go to meet Samuel at Gilgal like Samuel told him. He does nothing. So far, this ridiculously good-looking tall guy has been a disappointment. This is God giving them the kind of king they asked for. But even here, God is working. Even here, we see God giving Saul a new heart. We see God's patience with Saul. God is working to save his people. So Saul's been secretly anointed, but he's stayed hidden. And now it's time for him to go public chosen by Lot. We read this bit earlier. Samuel gathers all God's people together at Mizpah. Remember, that's where they gathered in chapter 7 to repent and cry out for God's help. And now, in the same place, God is going to give them a king. But not before Samuel reminds them what this really means. Verse 18, And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. The Lord is the one who has rescued his people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them the land. And he rescued them from their oppressors during the time of the judges. The Lord is the one who cares for his people. But that's not enough for them. They've rejected God by asking for a human king. They are still treating God like a cosmic vending machine that exists to give them all that they want on their own terms. And so Samuel tells them to get ready to take lots. Now, they'd done this before. The priest or the prophet would cast lots to determine God's will. And because God told them to do this and he's sovereign over all things, they can be confident in the result. But this has ended badly for God's people before. Just after they entered the land with Joshua, when one of the Israelites, Achan, disobeyed and brought judgment on the whole nation, and they cast lots to determine who would be punished. Now imagine this scene. 
Instead of fighting the Philistines, Saul has done nothing. Samuel gathers the whole nation together. He tells them that they've rejected God by asking for a king, and then he starts taking lots. This sounds like judgment. The lot falls on Benjamin, and then on Saul's family, and then on Saul. But they're looking around, and Saul's missing. Everyone turns around to the spot where he's supposed to be, and he's gone. Where did he go? Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) It's not hard to blame Saul here, I don't think. This is a pretty scary situation. And you have to wonder if he's feeling ashamed and afraid because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. But this is also pretty lame. This guy is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to lead them into battle on behalf of God's people. And he's hiding among the bags. But the people are determined to have their king. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. This is like something from a comedy. They go and grab the scared guy from among the bags. They look at how tall he is and then they go, yeah, let's make him king. Long live the king. But we shouldn't be too harsh with them. After all, Samuel reminds us that this is the one that the Lord has chosen. God is working here to save his people. They're getting a king, but it's actually not going to be exactly what they asked for. They wanted a king like the nations, but Samuel reminds them of God's requirements for a king, probably from Deuteronomy 17, and he makes it clear that any king will rule under God's kingship. Godly kings will rule according to God's word, which they hear through the law and through the prophet. But again, it's an anticlimax. No great battle gets fought. The people just go home. There are some men of valor who are led by God to go with Saul, but others hurl abuse. Verse 27. And some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Here again, we see God's people rejecting God. Samuel has just said that this is the guy that the Lord has chosen. But they don't want him. Can this guy really save us? They're not so sure. And at this point in the story, neither are we. This guy looks very unimpressive. But God is at work. Because the next thing we see is Saul rescuing by the Spirit. Chapter 11. The people of Jabesh Gilead are in trouble. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan, close to the edge of Israel, and they are under attack. Nahash, the Ammonite, has brought his army and has them under siege. They're willing to disobey God's commands to make a treaty with him, to sell themselves to save their skin. But Nahash's terms are terrible, verse 2. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Here is arrogance 
Nahash is not interested in mercy. He's out to bring disgrace on God's people. This would be a terrifying situation. They asked for seven days to send messengers out and see if someone will come rescue him. And Nahash allows it. I think in his arrogance he agrees. Sure, bring it on, he says. That's my paraphrase. It so happens that they come to Saul's hometown and everyone is weeping. But where is Saul? Verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Saul, the rescuing king appointed by God, is out plowing the field. And his valiant men are nowhere in sight. What a disappointment. But again, God is working. Verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Saul is filled with this righteous, God-given anger. The spirit rushes on him just like before, but this time Saul acts. He cuts up his oxen, he sends them to Israel like a message, a call to arms, come and follow the king and his prophet. And the prophet. God is working because the dread of the Lord falls upon the people and they gather as an army, 330,000 of them. Saul leads them up to battle. The men of Jabesh-Gilead are relieved. Saul tells them salvation is coming. And the battle all happens in one verse. Verse 11. They struck down the Ammonites all morning. By lunchtime, they're scattered everywhere. And the people are elated. They want to put those naysayers of Saul's to death. But Saul gives credit where credit is due. He may have fought the battle, but God is the one working behind the scenes. Verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This ridiculously good-looking, slightly dim-witted and helpless guy has been God's instrument to save his people. And the people are inspired. At Samuel's word, they go up to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And there, as they make Saul king, through Samuel, they are warned to fear God. Here's where we see both threads of the story come together. God's people go up to Gilgal and they make Saul king. They sacrifice peace offerings, a way of recognizing that it is God's hand in their victory and thanking God. And all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. And Saul uses the opportunity to give a speech. Oh, Samuel uses the opportunity to give a speech to challenge them on their rebellion against the Lord and to show them God's faithfulness through it all. First, he calls God as his witness. He's not been underhanded with God's people. He's never taken from them or accepted bribes or oppressed the people, and they confirm it. Samuel has been righteous. But more than that, the Lord has been righteous with his people. Verse 7. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. 
He reminds them of three times they've seen God's righteousness. When they were in Egypt and they cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to rescue his people. But they forgot the Lord and so he sent enemies against them in judgment. So they cried out to the Lord again in repentance and he sent the judges to save them. He rescued them from their enemies. And now in the present, they have rejected their faithful God. When they saw Nahash coming, they didn't cry out to the Lord, their true king. They asked for a human king like the nations. And the Lord gave them what they asked for. Now Samuel warns them. If they and their king will fear the Lord and serve him and not rebel against his commandments, but follow him, then all will be well. And if they don't, then the Lord will judge them again and he will be righteous to do it. Sounds like Moses, right? Samuel even gives them a visual reminder. It's the time of the wheat harvest, not storm season. But before their eyes, the Lord sends thunder and rain in judgment against the people, a sign that they have rejected the Lord. And it's a devastating sign, isn't it? Huge storms are the last thing you want when the grain is ready to harvest. It can ruin the crop altogether. The people watch on in awe. Why would they reject the God who is king over all creation, even king over the storms, for a disappointing human king like Saul? And this time they react rightly. Verse 18. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants, the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. This is the right response to sin. To see God's power and to fear him. To treat him with right respect and awe as the God of the universe. And then to call out for mercy. To admit our sin without excuses and to cast ourselves on his mercy. And Samuel, he calls them to truly repent, verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. We've talked about repent before. Repent is a churchy word that means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. And that's what the people should do. They should turn to God to serve him, to follow him, to keep his commands, to serve them with all, him with all their heart. And they should turn away from sin, away from the things that can never deliver. Sin will always disappoint us. It promises much, but it always leads to slavery, suffering and loss. Ultimately, it leads to death. Sin is empty and it will always disappoint. And even though the people have rebelled and sinned against God, as they turn away from sin and turn to God, they can be confident in his forgiveness. And Samuel gives a reason in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is why the people can be confident. This is why God has been working behind the scenes all along throughout these chapters to save his people. 
because he will not forsake his people. He has chosen them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He made them his people and he keeps saving them even in their sin. Not because they're good, but for the sake of his name. Because the Lord God has staked his reputation, his name, on keeping his promises to his people. And he always keeps his promises. This should leave God's people confident. Confident to serve him because of all the great things that he's done for them, Samuel says. And if it does that for Israel then, how much more so for us now? See, we have seen God's faithfulness in much more than just Saul's life. We have a greater king, a king who wasn't particularly handsome, but who was always faithful to the Lord, a king of wisdom and fairness, a king who didn't hide from judgment among the bags, but who willingly went to the cross to take the judgment that we deserve. We have seen that God is so committed to his promises that he even willingly gave his son Jesus to die for our sins. We have seen that God is sovereign, even when all looks lost, even when God's people rejected God's promised king and gave him up to be killed, God was working his plan to win the ultimate victory over sin and death. And we have even more confidence to repent and turn to God. Because we are promised through Jesus that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. When we look around at the brokenness of our world, the suffering around us, the struggles we face, even our own sinfulness, it is easy for us to lose hope. It is easy for us to want to give up, to wonder if God has given up on us. But we need a greater perspective. We need to remember that even as we see one thing, behind the scenes, God is working to faithfully save his people. The Lord God, our Lord God, will never forsake his people. He always keeps his promises. He is working for our good and for his glory. And if we trust in Jesus, we can be confident in that. We can remember that the Lord is working. He is sovereign. He is faithful. He will keep his promises. He has staked his reputation on it. And even when all seems lost, he is still working. We can bank on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people, even in the midst of their sin. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even in our sin and brokenness. Please help us to remember your faithfulness, to remember this story and to remember how you are working behind the scenes, even when we can't see it, to keep your promises and save your people. Please help us remember that this week, no matter what we face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.